Thank you for downloading this podcast from Pardes, North America. This episode of the Pardes Parsha podcast features Rabbi Brent Spodek and Professor Ziva Hassenfeld on Parshat Vayera. For the latest episode of the Parsha podcast, please visit elmod.pardes.org. And now, Rabbi Brent Spodek and Professor Ziva Hassenfeld. Hi, I'm Ziva Hassenfeld, Professor of Jewish Education and, and Education Studies here at Brandeis University, and I'm so excited to be back and learning with you, Brent. Cool. Hey, Ziva. Uh, so, yeah, I'm Brent Spodek. I'm the rabbi in Beacon, New York, uh, and I am super excited to be learning with you again and learning for the Pardes podcast. Um, and, you know, we're talking about Parshat Vayera. And Ziva, when we were talking before, you were talking about all sorts of complicated dynamics uh, with Sarah and Hagar and the way gender plays out uh, in Parshat Bayera. And I'm hoping you can uh, walk me through a little bit what you're thinking. Absolutely. So, Brent, um, I got this. I got this sound advice from my mother, uh, which was, when you're doing your scholarship, nobody cares about your Torah, and when you're doing your Torah, no one cares about your scholarship. So, you know, know which hat you're wearing. But it's good advice. Yeah, it was good advice. And I uh, am going to politely decline. What I want to <laughs> do with you is I sort of want to bring some of the questions I think about um, to you and apply them to our text. And so I'll jump in and because they, we have the scoot of learning by air, which is such a rich um, parsha. And the story of Sarah and Hagar is just so. Um, so complicated and compelling on so many levels that I want to go into it, but um, I want to do something with it with you. Are you, are you up for it? Uh, absolutely. Okay. Show so me the way. But basically, we we jump in in our Parsha um, already where Sarah and Abraham have, uh, they finally, finally give birth to Yitzchak, but yeah. in their family is already um, we already have, right, Hagar and Yishma'am, which was Sarah's idea. So I want to I wanna read to you what happens in our Parsha and then actually take us back to the story of the birth of Yishma'am. That's okay. Sound okay? Great. Yeah. So what, what passage should I look at? Could you please go to chapter 21, Perak Kaf Aleph, and look at Pasuk Tet. Okay, this is a very famous, right? Um, you know, pages and pages. The Teres at Ben Hagar Hamitzrit Asher Yodala Abraham Met Safek. Do you want to? Uh, and I just had a fabulous conversation with a scholar of language education, so I have to choose my words carefully. Do you want to translate that verse or say what it means in English? I'm happy to do either of those things, but I confess I just need you to give me the pasuk again. I was a step behind Absolutely. you in opening Safari. I'm sorry, I went too fast. 21. Yep. Nine. 21, which? Verse 9. Ah, yes. Okay. Vitere Sarah et Ben Hagar ha Mitzrit asher yalda la Avraham Mitzachek. Okay. And she saw Sarah did. The son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she birthed for Abraham, Mitzachek, laughing, playing, 
Something more Something. Sinister. We don't know. One way or the other, she sees she sees the son of Hagar, who Hagar had born for Abraham, doing something, and I know there's some ambiguity about what exactly, but something in the broader arena of laughing, playing, joking, having some sort of fun. Exactly. And she doesn't like it. And we see this really difficult moment. I'm, I'm sort of putting my gloss on it. But um, I think the majority of our listeners would agree anytime that we exile a uh, child or a person, it's, it's difficult to read, right? For sure. And that's exactly what she asks. In the next verse, she says, Avraham. She says to Avraham, Garesh ha'amahazot. Right, drive out or expel this handmaid, the et right, and her son. So whatever this mitzachek was, it's an unless it was just an excuse, it's enough for Sarah to either feel compelled or to seize the opportunity to get Hagar and Yishmael out. Unless there's any uh, doubt about her intentions, right? Right? Because we might say, oh, but really, like, Mitzachek could be this really um, kind of dangerous behavior or harmful behavior. It's hard to defend Sarah because of what she says next, right? Uh-huh. That right? because I don't want this son of the maidservant, the handmaid, to inherit with my son, with Yitzchak. It's notable here, I'm just struck. So, um, you know, in Pasuk 9, it's very, it makes the point, Asher Yelda La Avraham, right? That the child is Abraham's, I mean, obviously, Hagar gave birth, but the child is, um, I'm not quite sure exactly how to translate the la in la Abraham, but for Abraham, on behalf of Abraham, that this is clearly Abraham's, there's clearly a connection between the child and Abraham. But then when Sarah comes and says, cast out the slave women and her son, right, Hamahazot, even that is very sort of distancing, right? The the um, uh, the the way in which the um, she really becomes an object, the et bana, right? And the bana, it's possessive. It's her son. And then the text comes back eleven on pasuk eleven and says the matter distressed Abraham greatly. Um, uh, bano, uh, al odot bano that. He was a choice because he was like, no, no, this is my son. So there are these, like, there are these two layers that are sort of jumping out at me. One is how is Ishmael understood by Abraham and by Sarah and by Hagar and what are those relationships? And maybe at a more fundamental level, when and how is Hagar and Ishmael seen as a human being in their own right, created in the image of God with their needs for, you know, say, water and a, a human connection? And when are they objects that are fitting into this um, story, but it's not really about them? Great. And so that's sort of, that's, these are the big questions. And uh, this is, we pick up in our Parsha with this story, but I want to actually take us back 
to, to the birth of Yishmael and to remind us of the story of how the idea that Hagar and Abraham should have a child even came to be. And I want to do that. So I, I made sort of this vague, elusive reference to uh, my scholarship. But really, the game I want to play with you today, Brent, is, is what interpretations can the text hold? Uh -huh. how, how malleable is the text? How um, elastic is the text in what it can hold? And when we try to answer that question together, are we, are we even ever in a place where we can answer that? Meaning, are we so sort of blinded by our own way of reading text, our own preferences, our own biases, our own uh, affinities to certain characters, that we're going to write off interpretations, not because the text can't hold them, but because the text just, we don't like them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, and I think with any text, certainly with our canonical Jewish text, being self-aware about the, 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 the optics, the way we read the text, right? If we want to cash in the 50 cent word, the hermeneutics we bring to thinking about this, is, is hugely important, particularly when we're looking at, you know, people we hold up, right, as the matriarchs, as, you know, this is Sarah Menu, but also looking at their problematic behaviors. And in some ways, I feel like um, uh, this, is, this is good training in the text to how to deal with people, because, you know, Sarah's not perfect, and neither is anybody else in my life that I admire. And I might admire them for this quality and not that quality, but being able to see them in their complexity is the foundation of a much more human relationship. Excellent. And so what I'm going to do, Brent, is I'm going to take us through a reading that um, actually denies the complexity. I'm <laughs> okay. going to take us through a reading, right? Because we're all in our own silos and we're in our own echo chambers. And you and I, we love complexity and we want to complicate the characters. But I am going to take us through a curriculum, a real curriculum that is used in many Jewish day schools okay. that, that, that wants to sort of preserve our obvious protagonists and uh, sacrifice at their expense uh, our, our antagonists, right? And this actually reminds me um, of the, one of the first classes that I took at Pardes with Rabbi Roth, Dr. Rabbi Roth. And it was a class on Mephoshim and on uh, biblical commentators. And he really showed us, right? Because in day school, we got, I didn't go to Jewish high school. I just went through eighth grade. We really only got to Rashi. And I remember this course showing us what it looks like to interpret with certain boundaries, with certain axioms, right? And one of the things he took us through is like, some of the Mephorshim say that certain characters have to be good. And so I'm going to take us in a curriculum that is going to insist that Sarah is good. And I'm going to ask you to uh, react as we go through it. Great. That, that's how, that sounds terrific. I, so what immediately comes up for me is actually how do we define good? And this might be about be a question now, right? But when we think about um, characters or even people in our lives, are the good characters the people 
who haven't done anything wrong, right, who are good, do those people even exist? Or is good actually, you know, we're, we're still in, um, uh, we're still in Tishrei here, and not that it's ever not Shuba season, is good somebody who, it's not that they don't have problematic aspects to their, uh, to their neshama, but they're working on it. They are engaged in the work of improvement and Shuba. And so I think there's a real question what you're saying, do we think of these characters as good? And then also underneath that, what do we mean when we say they're good? Excellent. All right, let's get into it. Go for it. So we're going back. We're going back for everyone following along to chapter 16. To, okay. And we're going to just start right at the top. And I'm going to read you a verse. And I'm going to translate it. And then I'm going to tell you, according to this curriculum, which is uh, which has a teacher guide, how I and you are supposed to teach it to the children. Good? Great. Go for it. Okay. For everyone following along, we're back in chapter 16. The birth of Yishmael. Sarai, Which pasuk? Verse 1. And Sarai, the wife of Ram, had not given birth for him yet. But to her, there was a maid, an Egyptian maidservant, and her name was Hagar. But Tomer Sarai, El of Ram. And Sarai said to Avram, Hine na. Asarani Adonai Miletit. Look, God has stopped me from giving birth. Bo na el shibchati, go now to my maidservant. Ulai ibanem imena. Maybe I will be built up with her. Vishma Avram lekol Sarai. And Avraham listened to her voice. So let me tell you, Brent, how you should teach this, okay? Lay it on me. Okay, I want you to discuss with the children, and now I'm reading from the lesson pointers. This is the curriculum la Discuss the emotional pain Sarai had by not having children. When you read Ulai Ibanemi Mena, point out that Sarai was so willing and selfless in giving Hagar to Avram so that she could be built up. Remind the children that when it says Vayishma Avram, that it does not say Vayat Avram, that this teaches us that Avram, who very much wanted to have children, did not do this thing of having a child with Hagar out of his own desire, but rather only because he listened to Sarai. I, I don't want to cut you off, but I already have. That's it. Let's go. All right. So one thing that jumps out to me actually is before we even get to the content is the frame, right. Of teaching this to children. And, um, you know, you are far more knowledgeable and nuanced when it comes to the uh, intellectual development of children. But I think about like that this is specifically for children. And I wonder, this is a sincere wondering, how much complexity can be handled at different levels, right? Like I think about for so many folks, you know, when you're a young child, you think your parents are gods, or at least as I understand, you know, 
child and adolescent development, you come into adolescence and you come and see your parents as flawed as they inevitably are. And then the, the hope is that you mature into an adult relationship with your parents in which you can see them as not gods and not uh, demon, not, not the gods you thought when you were three years old and not the demons you thought when you were 15 years old, but as, you know, complex human beings with their strengths and weaknesses. And so I'm aware of this framework being taught to children. And so one question I have is, can we teach to children? Well, you know, Sarah is a complicated figure, as is Abraham and as are you. You've got strong points and weak points. Let's see what happens when the, our strong points and weak points come to dominate. Right. This seems simple, certainly to my perspective, oversimplified. But I wonder, is it oversimplified for a child's level to put it in that binary? So you're sort of asking yourself the question, am I broadly on board with the agenda? Right. Does it make yeah. sense to me, Brent, that we should teach maybe um, a more. Um, a more black and white, a more sanitized understanding of this text oh no adarava uh just the opposite i don't want to teach that sanitized version i'm trying to read I, I confess from what you shared of that curriculum my initial reaction was somewhat resistant i'm trying to engage with it uh, uh compassionately and say ah maybe this makes sense dafka because we're talking to children this is oversimplified for adults but it's pitch perfect for a third grader Great, and I just want to ask you to answer a question that's even more fundamental. I love that you're sort of going to the agenda, but first, I promised that we were going to ask the question: Can the text hold it? What do you think? So, in in certainly, there's an agenda here to keep Sarah good, to keep our protagonist good. Okay, and certainly, there's a question: Is that a good agenda for children? And how about just a textual question? How about just a textual question? Is it true? Can the text hold this idea that um, there's a significance to the word Vayishma Avram and Avraham listened? Should we, Brent, meaning are you compelled? And even if you're not compelled, can the text hold that actually that is a real clear sign in the text that we need to pick up on to see just how sensitive Avram was to Sarai? That he didn't, but yeah, he didn't just do this thing. He only did it because she told him to. So, I, I, I honestly not sure how to answer the question because in a if because I'm a Jew, <laughs> um, which is to say, so what I'm thinking of actually, I, I, there's a, a thinker maybe you've crossed paths with uh, uh, Stanley Fish. So, okay. So, so, I mean, I'm sure you know more about him than, than I do, because I, I know very little, but from what I understand of Stanley, Stanley Fish, he talks about the ways in which our texts are constructed through communities of reading. And so to your question, can this text bear that interpretation? I, I, it feels a little bit like a stretch to me. But no more of a stretch than saying, you know, here are the rules of Shabbat and, you know, here are the Av Malachot and we're drawing them from these understandings of the Mishkan, which is to say, we understand Shabbat in the way that we do, broadly speaking, I don't mean just you and me, um, because we're part of an interpretive community that interprets the text to mean that you, uh, 
should walk on Shabbat. And so I'm not terribly compelled by this reading that Abraham had no desire in this. Abraham had no interest. He was only doing this to listen to Sarah. The fact that it keeps referring to the text as his son, it, it just doesn't sound right. It also just doesn't make sense. Um, it sort of flies in the face of my understanding of just desire. But is the, can that be a, a reading that is held by a community and perhaps a community that I'm not exactly part of? I guess so. I'm not compelled by it, though. I love it. I love it. And this is a question that just animates me uh, to no end, right? And so you're saying we live in a we live in an interpretive community, the Jewish interpretive community, the the precedents that we have in our textual tradition, our exegetical tradition are such that right, we say we use like the hermeneutics, the we're allowed to say, or at least the rabbis are allowed to say, like right? I'm actually gonna just change the word. So that the text Wait, and remind me what that means. Right. So so it, we say it in our davening, and we say like, don't read. And it's talking about uh, people who study Torah. Don't read that our sons, but rather read our builders. Right. That people who study Torah are not simply uh, sons, but they're actually building the world. Or that's my understanding. But the hermeneutical move there, and I'll stop using that word. The the move there. Um, is that I'm going to change the word. It's the same letters, right? But I'm going to change it so that it's actually a different word. And so when you say, when you invoke Stanley Fish and you invoke, texts don't mean anything without, without communities that decide the parameters of textual meaning. I think that that's so interesting because, and then when you make the second move that within our community, um, there could be Jewish communities that, that hold by the interpretive principle, we're gonna make Sarah and Avraham good at all costs. And I'm gonna find ways to do it. And you could live in a different community uh, or maybe it's stage of development, maybe it's age where we say, no, I wanna, I wanna hear the complexity of the text seems to be speaking. But you're so quick to say it's all good no matter what. And I, I'm pushing us on this because don't, don't, we have to, on some level outside of our own small communities, have shared boundaries of what text can mean? Yes, but I, I, I would read it the other way. It's not that we have to have boundaries on, uh, and it's not that our community has to set up boundaries on what the text can mean. I would read it the other way the meaning we draw out of the text in part defines the communities that we're part of, right? Does that seem dangerous? In what way? Well, you know, and here we venture into, um, into areas and disciplines that I'm not an expert in, but let's take, um, let's take the Supreme Court, right? Like, isn't there a need for, we can't just say, oh, well, the current Supreme Court is made up of Christian nationalists, Christian fundamentalists, and therefore we understand that they're going to read out the privacy clause. So, so that's a great example, actually, because I also have no particular expertise uh, when it comes to the Supreme Court, but I know that I can't simply walk out of the jurisdictional authority of the Supreme Court, right? I live in America, I'm an American, and 
we need our political institutions to be responsive to the full country, not just the Christian nationalists. In the Jewish framework, though, because we can just leave in some ways, mm -hmm. um, it's a slightly different equation. And what I'm thinking about, actually, so, you know, you and I live in heavily overlapping yet uh, distinct corners of the Jewish world. And um, so what I'm thinking about is, you know, when I was a kid, and I'm sure when you was a, were a kid, the Shimon Esrei, right, there was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Right. That was that. Then all sorts of other folks said, no, no, we're not represented in that text. So we need to include the matriarchs. And so in lots of communities, certainly that I'm part of. Right. Totally standard for the Shimona Esrei or for all sorts of things to refer to the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Becker, Rachel and Leah. Right. Now, does the text bear the idea that the matriarchs are central figures? Absolutely. But the question of define, uh, including them in the Amidah sets certain communities, right? If I lead the, the Amidah and I include the matriarchs, that puts me very much in the center of some communities, very much on the outs of others. But not so long ago, I was in a context where somebody included not just the four matriarchs, uh, Sarah Becker, Rachel, and Leah, but also included Bill and Zilpah. Yeah. Included the, the, the people maybe a little bit more akin to Hagar. Yeah. And I was totally taken aback. So I was like, now on the textual level, the, the, it's a totally reasonable reading. It is entirely legitimate on a plain textual reading to include all six of those women. But the communities that I'm part of, or I should say the communities that I have been part of, absolutely include the four official matriarchs, but hadn't included these other two. These other communities that included Bill and Zilpah are saying, no, no, we want to recognize a broader range of things. We want our understanding of Judaism to be more broad. And our understanding is defining the community this way. And if somebody says, you know what, this just isn't a community for me. It's more important to me to feel connected to what my great-grandfather did than it is to feel connected to making sure that the marginalized people are included. You can just move there in ways you can't with the Supreme Court. So... I think that you're right that the Supreme Court and any political institution should be responsive to all of the people who fall in its jurisdiction, certainly in a democracy. But when it comes to reading our texts, I wonder if it's not the communities that define the parameters, but it's the opposite. It's the parameters that define the communities. Great. I think it's possible. I think we need, right, I, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to sort of raise the stakes on, on the question of, right, because when we're thinking about, it's fun when we're learning Torah to think about, can the text hold this reading? It's fun to notice our own biases. Um, once we get to actual legislation, once we get to uh, the constitution in America or halacha in um, Judaism, it gets less fun, right? Because all of a sudden it has real consequences. Yeah. So. So I want to play this game one more time. We're going to do one more round of this. Great. Uh, but I hope that um, in the Jonathan hate metaphor that the elephants are out because I think I'm going to learn that from you, by the way, Brent. Um, because, oh, we learned right from, we learned it together from yeah. uh, their curriculum, the Pardes curriculum, the wonderful curriculum on Machloka. Machloka right? matters. Yeah. But uh, so the elephants are out, I hope. 
And, and let's do it one more time, okay? Great. So here is our firm curriculum who's going to teach the children what the text means, okay? And they sort of talk more about, um, so just to, to catch us back up where we are in the story, so Sarah has this plan, right? And we know already from our Parsha that it's going to ultimately go wrong, but that she can't have a child. And so maybe Abraham should have a child with Hagar and Abraham listens, he doesn't do, he listens because of his love for Sarah. And then in, and then Sarah takes Hagar to Abraham and the curriculum tells us takes is a sign of her love for him. And they do have a child and all is going well and Hagar, and Hagar has a child, she's a minor character and Abraham and Sarah love each other so much and they're showing, you know, there's just this platonic marriage where they just keep doing all of these gestures to show how sensitive they are to each other. Except for now, our curriculum has a problem because the conflict is pretty explicit in the text, right? And so now I'm in verse four. I'm gonna read us a few verses and then I'll read us how this curriculum suggests we teach it. Pasuk four in 16, yeah. 16, four. Yeah. We're staying in 16 for the rest of today. Great. Except that we, when we get to Vayera, we're ready to understand the story of Hagar's banishment. Right, so he goes to Hagar and she becomes pregnant. She sees that she's pregnant and she becomes slighted in her mistress's eyes or her mistress becomes slighted in her eyes. Okay, so now there's friction between Hagar and Sarai. The Tomer Sarai El Avram Hamasi Alacha Anochi Natati Shishati Bechaykacha so now the curriculum has a problem because Sarai is very upset and she says to Abraham that uh, look at this, this terrible uh, thing that has happened. I gave you my maidservant and now I've become um, slighted in her eyes, less in her eyes. May God judge between me and you. So how is our, our our sanitized reader going to fix this conflict? Yeah, I'm, I'm very curious. <laughs> um, so the first thing it says is the next few psukim have to be explained very clearly so that the children do not misunderstand. So what, that, what are we afraid that they might misunderstand? Um, Let's find out. Sarai felt an injustice was done to her by Avram, who had not davened enough for the two of them to have a child. She had a complaint against Avram. Sarai emphasized to Avram, I gave you my shivcha, and even though she did marry you, she is still my shivcha, and she has no right to treat me the way she does. Now here's what becomes interesting. Now they bring Rashi, who said, suggests that the extra yud, when she says, may God judge between me and you, suggests that actually Hagar was standing there. So actually that really, really harsh part where she says, may God judge between me and you, is not her speaking to Avram, but her speaking to Hagar. Right, so let's just make clear to the children that though there's some marital tension, 
it doesn't get to the point where it's actually um, oppositional. It's actually aggressive. Can the text hold that, friend? And do you care? I, 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 I'm, I'm stuck. For me, as a reader, I, it doesn't really hold that. I find myself curious about a very different set of questions here. And I guess I'd say, I don't know that I would want to be, I, I wouldn't be drawn to be part of a community, to be in a narrative, in an interpretive community that can only see, see it in this way, but right? Can it feels, you see it in this way? Do I? No. But can you? Not comfortably, no. Say more. Well, first, the idea, I mean, like the reading the davening back in is just obviously isogetical, right? It's not in the text. There's nothing in the text about davening. Um, uh, I mean, it, just the fact, daven's not even a Hebrew word, um, which is this, I mean, obviously it's the Jewish word. What I'm thinking of is um, years and years ago, I, uh, I, I really regret not buying this a children's coloring book I saw in uh, Measharim that had the Bnei Yisrael crossing, you know, the children of Israel crossing the splitting of the Red Sea, wearing Shrimlach, because of course they wore Shrimlach. What on earth else were the Israelites wearing, right? And now, I'm, I mean, I'm not a history, historian of uh, clothing, but I'm confident nobody in Egypt 5,000 years ago wore Shrimlach, um, uh, wore, you know, big fur hats. Right. And so, but that community needed to understand the Israelites in their, in their image, right? So they created the Israelites in their image. It's not a reading I think the text can really hold. And the questions I ask are, are different and about, so I, and coming back to Pasuk 4 here, right? The Tekal Gibrat Girta, I'm sorry. Right? And I was lightened and I was lessened and I was less weighty in my in my might, in my gibor, in my presence. And so I'm there struck by all of the ways in which Sarah, like me, right? And so now this is me reading myself back into the text. I have an image of myself I'd like to project into the world and that I'd like to understand myself. And I can get very insecure and defensive when I feel like my image is not being um, received by the people I'm trying to project it to. And that's where I can get defensive. And so much growth comes from saying, oh, hey, you know what? Maybe I can just let go of this image I'm trying to project and recognize that I am a messy, chaotic human. And so is the person I'm talking to. So the question I want to ask here is a very different question. Why was Sarah so committed to the idea that she could only be whole if she had a child? What was the, the, the strength, the gibor that she was trying to hold on to? Is there a way to acknowledge that pain and their loss? And maybe Abraham never really listened to her. Abraham listened to her words, but Abraham didn't listen to the music behind her words. Why are you offering me your maidservant? Where is your heart at, right? Abraham listened, but he didn't really hear. He obeyed, but he didn't engage. That's a very different reading, though. 
Yeah, I love the question. I'm inclined to go there. It speaks to me as a reader. Um, and I'm still gonna push us to deal with readings that are not compelling. Now, first, just as uh, to hold us to our own standards of can the text hold our reading, how are you reading Givreta? You're reading, because are you reading Gibor into, which I think, I mean, this is an interesting question. Now, um, our, our linguist friends are gonna come to us and, and give us a very official answer. Can the text hold it or not, right? As if uh, Chazal was beholden to such right. constraints. But um, I understand that word is just, but I never read it that way, the way you read I understood just to mean like her, her, What's opposite of maidservant? Her, her, her master. Her yeah, her master, her female master. Right, but then couldn't the text say? And again, I, I'm not a linguist, but the text I think would hold if it, in Pasuk four, if it just read the uh, takel and she was lightened, she was lessened in her eyes. Right. Well, that's always my question on it. Right now that they have become equal, and I didn't mention this here. Right. But, or I mentioned it in passing, but Sarah gave Hagar as a wife. So on some level, they're now equals, right? And now our reader, our curriculum is saying, no, 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 they're not really equals. Even though the text says Isha, somehow we have to remember that she's, that Hagar is still and always inferior to Sarah. Right. I imagine and, in the communities where this curriculum is read, there are a lot of little girls named Sarah and not so many little girls named Hagar. I, I imagine that's true, right? <sighs> Um, I remember when I went to study abroad at Hebrew University my junior year, my Israeli roommate was Hagar, it was the first, of course, she was Chiloni, but it was the first Jewish Hagar I'd ever met. Um, and Dafka, you know, you said she's Chiloni, she's secular in Israel, which is also to say the secular Israeli community, which is obviously a large and multi multifaceted community, is a different interpretive tradition. Whoever that girl's parents were, were clearly making a point in naming their Jewish Israeli kid Hagar. Yes, yes. And so so on our particular verse, in indulging our own interpretive uh, questions, I think that there is some ambiguity over who was lessened in whose eyes. And if we took Girata out, there would certainly be an ambiguity. Yeah. But I'm not going to let us today. Okay. I'm not going to let us pursue the questions we want, because we have a meta question that we're after. And that's, I think you are being too uh, pluralistic. I think you're being too relativist. Like, okay, they need these readings and we need our readings. But if we are all just, if, if texts don't ground us, if texts don't rein us in on our ideologies and, and hold us accountable, then what are we, then what, are, what are we doing here? If this well, is I okay for them, but not for us, then you're okay with that, Brent? And so this is where I come back to 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 Fish, to Stanley Fish and Jane Tompkins, again, who I, you know much better than I do. I'm, is there a community that can hold that reading, right? Or, I mean, let's put it differently. To put it mildly, all of the Jews together, us, the people who wrote this curriculum, everyone, are a small minority of the interpreters of this text, right? 
Islam reads this text in a very different way. Christianity reads this text in a very different way. And in those communities, and obviously those are there are myriad communities within those, those big categories, there are different interpretive traditions that I'm alien from. And so the idea, I, I don't think, I don't experience the text as holding this, but I recognize that there are communities that do, and maybe this is too pluralistic, although I'm convinced or I'm compelled by Fish's argument that it's not an individual reader, but it's a question of a community of readers. I'm just not a part of this community. And I guess probably more, um, more significantly, I'm not drawn to be a part of this community. This, the interpretation you're providing does not make me think, yes, I want to spend more time with those people because that's going to enable my heart to grow and me to be able to do tshuva. But why can't you just say, I'm sorry, there's no evidence in the text of davening, it's wrong. Why won't you say that? Because I'm not Martin Luther, because I'm, uh, I'm, not, I'm not preaching solo scriptura, right? I'm not saying the text in and of itself. And I'm aware that if I say that on this text, if I say that on this text, then how do I justify any other readings that I make and I'm not even talking about out there readings, totally mainstream Jewish readings, right? Like that we should observe Shabbat the way we do. I'm not sure that if you just, if you had no experience of Judaism whatsoever, right? You showed up from Mars and were handed the Tanakh, you'd be like, oh, obviously I can't walk more than, you know, I can't out walk outside the Tchum Shabbat on, on, on the seventh day, right? It's only because there's a community that holds that reading that that reading makes sense. I, if it would be meaningful for me to condemn this reading, I guess I could, but I don't know that anybody cares that I condemn it any more than I care that they condemn my reading. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm gonna push you one, one place harder, right? Because certainly, and really I'm playing this game just for our audience if they're getting sort of bored of the game, even though I find it absolutely delightful. Same here. Uh, I'm going to end with a big takeaway about, I actually think that the most, uh, and, and here I'm being essentialist, but I'm allowing myself permission to be essentialist, the most profound uh, aspect of, if, of the Jewish reading practice or Jewish reading practices is a celebration of the elasticity of meaning, is a celebration of the fact that, of, that texts are inherently ambiguous and that we're going, and, and even though there's something profoundly radical about the theological statement that God revealed God's will as text, as language in Lashona Kodesh, because we know that language is so ambiguous, even though that's actually a radical um, proposition that I think other religious traditions have clamped down on and said, this is the authoritative meaning of a seemingly ambiguous text. I think that we see over and over again in, in the Jewish reading practices that we celebrate it. And so really, I, I, I am absolutely delighted with your pluralism. But I, I, I want to ask, like, of course, we'll draw it somewhere, right? And so here's where I'm going to push you one more time to see if, if, if my friend Brent, even if no one else cares but me, is going to say, Adkan, I'm not okay with this one. Are you ready? <laughs> um, you know, I've been doing all this work in Chuba to try and be less judgmental, and now you're trying to make me more judgmental. 
That's absolutely right. <laughs> okay, so we're still I in chapter 16, the last thing that happens, right? Just so we shouldn't get to Parsha Vayera and think that it's the first time, it's the first time that um, Hagar has had to leave or been compelled to leave. We Verse six, Vayomer Avram El Sarai, Hine Shikha here is your maidservant, Vayadach, in your hand, do what is good in your eyes to her. And she, again, I'm not going to translate this, but this is which is some form of, um, some form of torture or, or, or um, hard work. We see it in the context of slavery in Shmot. We see it in the context of rape and other stories. That's the shirsh, v'ta'aneha la'anot sarai v'tirach mipanecha. And Hagar ran away from her. Very difficult verse. But fear not, because our curriculum is going to fix everything. Yeah, I wonder how that, how do they save that word ta'ana? No doubt they're going to save it, because we know who our protagonist is, right? Right. Okay. Sarai made Hagar work hard. Sarai's intent was not malicious, rather it was to force Hagar to stop acting the way she was acting. Instead of learning to behave differently, Hagar runs away. And just to save the marriage, you should know that when Avram says, do what's good in your eyes, he's not being dismissive. Rather, Avraham has tremendous respect and trust in Sarah. And that's why he said that. Teach the children that, Brent. Yeah, I'm not going to teach the children that. That's I, I can certainly say, even if I'm resistant to judging it for them, I'm happy to judge it for me. This isn't a compelling reason to me. And part of the reason it's not compelling is because I recognize in myself the desire to torture people. Right? And um, if I don't, I think part of what's powerful about the Torah is that it gives us a framework to wrestle with our own demons. And it's, if I think, oh, Sarah is all good, Hagar is all bad, I see myself then, am I good or am I bad, right? And I'm, I'm thinking of, um, uh, I'm thinking of the very beginning of the Tanya, right? Uh, I, I, paraphrasing, Yeshva Olam Tzadikim V'Rashayim, right? They are the wicked and the righteous. This is for the ones in the middle, which is everyone else. I actually think we're all in the middle. Maybe some are closer to one end and some are closer to the other. But Sarai felt, I mean, I read this and I'm like, wow, Sarai felt defensive. She felt diminished. She felt humiliated. She felt regretful. And in her place of pain, she tortured someone. She did she didn't that wasn't like you gotta stay and do your homework really hard. She tortured her. And here's here's where the non-judgmentalism comes in. Forget I don't I'm not at all convinced by the from reading that of course Sarai was perfect. I actually also don't even want to condemn Sarai. Right? I want to look at Sarai and be like, wow, from your place of pain, you hurt other people. I feel frustrated, but I also feel compassionate. When I think about the times in my life when I've caused pain to other people, it's because I was hurting too. And I wasn't dealing with my hurt in a productive way. 
So I spilled it out on everyone near me. That's what Sarah's doing here. And so to flatten her is to flatten me. And I know I'm not flat and I can't believe she's flat either. So to that extent, I will, I will at very least push this curriculum away from me. I love it. I mean, I love, I love your read. And, and, and right now I'm, I'm at a fork in the road where I, you know, my favorite way to learn Torah is to say something um, deeply profound that, that, that inspires me to act differently, which is what you just said. And I want to celebrate that and elevate that. And since today I'm playing the cynic, um, I would say, isn't that convenient, right? Like, I'm, do you ever notice that kids' movies today, like when we were growing up, of course they were all have problematic for all sorts of reasons, the Disney movies, but there were, the bad guys were just bad. But now the bad guys are always actually misunderstood, right? Like in, uh, in oh my gosh, how am I gonna forget? Uh, what was the latest Disney movie? With Madrigal. Oh, uh, Encanto. Encanto, right? And and the bad brother turns out just to be misunderstood. He's really actually a good guy. Bruno. Bruno, thank you. Right? And I was like, whatever happened to like Jafar? <laughs> you know, like, so I do want to name, I love what you're saying. And it's very much a product of the world that we live in where we, where people are complicated. Sure. I too am embedded in an interpretive community, right? I mean, even that right there, you could reasonably assume that I knew the Disney movie you were talking about. It just took us a moment to get there because we live in a community in which plugged in Jews watch Disney movies. Absolutely. There are certainly communities in which that wouldn't be the case. It's, it's not canonical. For you and me, Encanto is functionally canonical, um, right? And so, I hear what you're saying, and it's very of this moment. I think that's a good thing. I think there really is. I mean, I look at, you know, you're talking about the Supreme Court before. Um, we live in a community, we live in a world that's so polarized. And look, there are bad people out there, like we're Jews. We're, we're, there are actually evil actors who do evil things to other people, often us. That's true. But I think that's actually a relatively small minority of people. And in my day-to-day -day life, and I suspect yours, I'm not dealing with monsters. I'm not dealing with Nazis. I'm not dealing with murderers. I'm dealing with other hurting human beings. And to sort of, to say, oh, there's Jafar, they're bad, I think leads to a certain way of being like, oh, you know, they're, they're, they have this position and so they're bad. They have that position and they're bad. And look, there are such people, like it is actually, I would say, bad to, I don't know, storm the Capitol and try to overthrow an election by force. That's bad. But to be able to say, oh, wait a minute, where are you coming from? Why are you pursuing those things that seem so alien to me? Can I get to a place where I have some compassion for you? I think actually might make the world a little bit less terrible. I agree. And so I wanna I wanna sort of 
wrap up and close with the following takeaways and unresolved questions. Great. Okay? The takeaway is Brent and Ziva like to see the complexity. We actually think that there's a moral imperative to see the complexity in the characters, in the text, that we, that that, um, that is the, the sandbox that we like to play in and we're there intentionally. We've chosen to be there. A hundred percent. You know, we could say that we're there because of the particular moment and conditions in which we live. And Completely I agreed. And I think the beauty of Torah and why I love learning with you and why I love bringing um, readers to the table from our tradition who live in different moments in time and different communities is that it really pushes us to see both the flexibility of these texts and um, the boundaries that we feel we need to draw for our Torah. Yeah, yeah, I think that that makes complete sense. There are some readings that just wouldn't fly in the community that I'm part of or the community that you're part of, and that's also okay. But I want to be in that community. Great. And I want to be in that community and learn from all communities. Um, amen, amen. Well. I hope that, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, this is such a pleasure. I feel like there's so much more here I want to explore. We have to save that for next year. Um, but the dynamics of this are just so rich, and I'm so glad you brought this curriculum. Even as I'm pushing it away, I'm really glad for that uh, learning by way of negation. <laughs> I don't want to flatten out the Torah characters, and I don't want to flatten out the characters in my life. And thank you for bringing this text to remind me what I don't want to do. My pleasure. Thank you for learning it with me. I look forward to learning with you again soon. Sounds good. Me too. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of Pardes North America. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Spotify for the latest episodes of the Pardes Parsha podcast.